Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA's section on dispute resolution, where we have conversations with members of the dispute resolution and prevention community about various topics of interest in the field. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and this week I'll be talking with Elizabeth Hill, the Associate Director of the Ombuds Office at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she has served as an Ombuds since May of 2016. In addition to being an attorney, trained mediator, and certified organizational ombuds practitioner, Liz is the co-chair of the ABA Section on Dispute Resolutions, Ombuds Committee, and lead for the Ombuds Day 2019 Task Force. Good evening, Liz. Good evening, Adam. So Liz, I definitely want to talk more about Ombuds Day and what it means to be an ombuds person. But first, can you tell me about how you got your start in the practice of law and what drew you into the world of... Um, ombudsmanship, if you will? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I would consider this probably my third career. Um, my first career was hotel restaurant management. And after working a few years as a restaurant manager at the Hyatt Regency Embarcadero in San Francisco, I decided to attend law school, thinking that an advanced degree would serve me well and improve my quality of life. <laughs> so then upon a graduating law school, um, I focused on state and local taxation in Phoenix, Arizona, and eventually ended up at the Arizona Attorney General's Office in the tax section. I practiced law for about six years and have served as an ombuds in a few different capacities for the past 13 years. My first ombuds role was a classical ombudsman for the state of Arizona. The Arizona Ombudsman Citizens Aid Office happened to be hiring a licensed attorney to serve as an assistant ombudsman handling open meeting law and public record disputes. And a colleague literally suggested I look into it. And honestly, Adam, I had at that point no idea what an ombudsman was. Um, but fortunately, I had served on the Attorney General's open meeting law enforcement team and knew a thing or two about open meeting laws. So after some initial research, I decided to apply and that was my introduction to the ombuds profession. Um, about four years later, I transitioned from the Arizona Ombudsman Citizens Aid Office to a corporate organizational ombuds for Apollo Education Group, also in Phoenix, Arizona. And after about four or five years, I transitioned here to Boulder, Colorado, and now serve as an organizational ombudsman for the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and as you, as you already mentioned, um, I am a train, I'm an attorney. Of course, I am also a trained uh, mediator, certified organizational ombuds practitioner, and active in both the American Bar Association as well as the International Ombudsman Association. It's a really interesting career path. Um, <laughs> I so maybe you mentioned that I, I missed it, but did you was the ombuds um, position your first foray into dispute resolution, aside from being a practicing attorney, or were you a mediator and interested in ADR before that? No, that my in, uh, ombudsman work was my first introduction to ADR. I had taken some courses in law school, but aside from that, that was my, uh, yeah, first experience. I, I asked because the usual path that I've seen to being an ombuds person has been, you know, you're an attorney or somebody who is um, involved in dispute resolution generally, and then you get into mediation, and then that's kind of the natural transition. Um, I don't like to do things the easy way, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> my, it's uh, a lot of my career path has been happenstance, and that's that's a perfect example. 
I, I know very few people who are doing the thing today after they've started practice that they set out to do back in, back in law school or undergrad. So it's always a, an interesting um, transition from whatever you're doing to whatever you end up uh, practicing. So true. And, and as you may know already, while many ombudsmen are not attorneys, and you know, in fact, probably the majority are not attorneys, um, in my particular situations, it was my JD that really got, you know, was, was afforded me the opportunity to get the positions that I, that I did end up in. For instance, like I mentioned at the state of Arizona, you know, for that particular ombuds position, you had to be a state licensed attorney. Um, and then subsequently in my organizational ombuds roles, it just so happened that the two roles I've had um, were both looking for an ombuds with a JD to kind of help round out their office. Oftentimes ombuds offices like to have, you know, people with different backgrounds. And it just so happened the ombuds offices I was joining already had folks with psychology um, and like counseling and therapy backgrounds. And so they were looking for someone with an attorney background. So it just happened that um, in my case, it was my law degree that helped me land the positions. Right. And of course, having a diverse staff on an ombuds office is, you know, clearly an advantage. Mm -hmm. So you want people that can um, speak to different people of different backgrounds in the ombuds office. Exactly. And come with, you know, different life experiences, having served in different roles and really see the world through different lenses. It's important for, you know, offering as many perspectives and options as possible. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you said earlier that when you first got, you know, first saw the opportunity to become an ombudsperson, you didn't really have a good sense of, of what it was. Um, and on a previous episode of the podcast, we had uh, Nick Deal and Rachel Viscomi talk to, about, uh, talk to us about the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program. Yes. And kind of what it means to be an ombudsperson. Um, and I'd have to plug ourselves and recommend that you go back and listen to that episode. Um, but perhaps you can give us a, a refresher on what it means to be an ombuds person and kind of the different roles that an ombuds person might take on. Yeah, and so that's you know that's um, a very broad question. So I will try to you know stay on point. Um, you know, and and I'll just start with the fact that for many people, the word in and of itself. Ombudsman is, is difficult to say, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that explaining what we do is even more challenging. But in short, um, just starting with um, the definition, you know, really what it means to be an ombudsman, and I'll, and I'll say this also referred to commonly as an ombudsperson or the shorter version, which many universities use as ombuds, um, really does depend on the type of ombuds program. Um, but at its core, ombudsman is a Swedish term and literally the definition is representative or agent but the professions evolved right so it started it is it's evolved since king charles the 12th of sweden appointed the first parliamentary ombudsman back in 1713 and so the profession has evolved since then and really many of the ombuds that you'll meet today um, are not representatives or agents. So it's interesting because the term that we still use really doesn't even reflect um, the work we do, which can be confusing, as you might imagine. And Liz, I, I cheated a little bit and I actually looked it up 
beforehand. And it reminded me of another Scandinavian event uh, that happens in October. And this is part fun fact and part public service announcement, but Dispute Resolution Month is October and October 4th is, and I apologize for the pronunciation, Kanelbollensdag or <laughs> Cinnamon Roll Day in Sweden. Um, so maybe we can all celebrate Dispute Resolution Month and Ombuds Day with some baked goods. Love it. I'm on board. We'll make sure to have those at our Ombuds Day events. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sorry for getting off track. Um, you were talking about the evolution of Ombudsman from um, archaic Sweden to modern day. Right. And so what's happened over those couple hundred of years um, is that the professions evolved and it's um, separated into different models of ombuds and the most common models that we have here in the United States are referred to as the classical, also the public sector, um, kind of combined into one there, the advocate, the organizational, and then the federal ombuds programs, and there's over 150 federal ombuds programs um, in the United States today, um, have also a variety of models within the federal um, system. And we all talk a little bit more about that, but you'll see ombuds everywhere. Um, you'll see ombuds in the government, you'll see them in corporations, education, healthcare, nonprofits, et cetera. Um, so again, you know, I'm talking in very broad strokes here. So those who are listening who are also well-educated, please don't hold me to not sharing <laughs> all the specifics and all the nuances um, because there are many. And, and, you know, it's even difficult to compartmentalize some ombuds programs into a particular model because even within the various models, the programs can um, really differ quite a bit one from another. Um, so Adam and, and, and feel free to pause me anytime, but I'll start with the classical and share a little bit about that and then move into each. And if you'd like me to pause after each for questions, I'm happy to do that as well. Absolutely. Go right ahead. Great. So the first one, as I mentioned, is the classical slash public sector. And this is what does most closely resemble what we saw back in Sweden um, in, the, you know, in 1713. Um, and the primary duty of a classical ombuds is to receive complaints from government workers and the general public about the actions of government officials and public employees. So the classical ombuds has, while they do, I would say, resolve uh, most, uh, probably about 80% of their um, cases informally, they do have formal investigatory authority and many also have statutory authority to issue subpoenas. Um, they also will then issue or write and, and potentially issue public reports on their investigative findings um, and the recommendations that they're making you know, to any given agency. So they do that. They also push for systemic change um, internally, you know, directly with the different agencies or publicly, and that would be through published reports. So the classical ombuds, you know, they, like I've said, it address issues um, with state agencies for the entire state. Their public sector counterparts also use a similar model as classical ombuds, but usually have a more narrow jurisdiction. So for example, you might see public sector counterparts um, in county, organizations or city um, organizations. And there are many public sector ombuds programs that mirror the classical model. Um, let's see, I think there's, I don't know, I have some stats here somewhere, but uh, 
Yeah, there's hundreds of various public sector programs. But interestingly, Adam, here in the US, we only have six truly classical. And when I say classical, I'm talking about those statewide ombuds programs here in the US. And those states are Alaska, Arizona, Hawaii, Iowa, Nebraska, and most recently, South Carolina. So most ombuds created in this model um, are governed by some enabling legislation. And most also adhere to the United States Ombudsman Association's Model Act um, in standards of practice. And in a nutshell, those are independence, confidentiality, impartiality, at least at first impartiality, right? Unless they do do an investigation and find wrongdoing, um, incredible review. So that's my summary <laughs> of the classical public sector ombuds. I don't know if you had any questions before I moved on to my advocate ombuds role. Right, well, I do have one question that it struck me as surprising when I was uh, listening to your description is that you don't usually think of an ombuds person or at least I haven't thought of an ombuds person as someone with the investigatory power that comes with a subpoena. Right. Um, that sounds more like, you know, you'd find something in a district attorney. Right. Um, so that's, that's a lot more authoritative. Well, that's a lot more authority than I thought a, uh, an ombuds person would have. Right. And again, that's very specific, you know, so let's not confuse that with the other models that we're going to talk about. That's very specific. I would say to the classical, those truly classical statewide ombuds programs that are created by their legislature, they're given statutory authority and they're the ones who are often given that particular authority. You won't see that um, in the advocate model, you won't see that in the organizational model, and you probably won't see that for most public sector ombuds other than those statewide programs. So would you say that even though it's the classic model, it's probably not the most often used model? Not currently. Um, and like I said, it most closely resembles that original definition of ombudsman, right? Representative or agent. Um, but no, I would say it's not the most widely used model um, today in the United States. Okay, so let's talk about some of the other models. Yeah, then. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the next one I was going to talk about was the advocate ombuds model. And advocate ombuds do exactly what it sounds like they do. They advocate and work on behalf of a specific population, right? And the population they advocate for is typically designated in their um, enabling legislation and or establishing charters. So they do have the authority to represent the interests of the populations they're designated to serve and they provide individual complaint assistance while pursuing opportunities to also affect that systemic change that I mentioned earlier. Um, advocate ombuds, their authority is typically, you know, providing information, offering advice, um, and providing assistance to their constituents. And they can also have the ability to, which is unique to the advocate model, um, the ability to initiate judicial or administrative actions on behalf of their designated population, the individuals they serve. So that's a unique um, function of the advocate model. Um, a common example here in the United States of advocate ombudsmen are our United States long-term care ombudsmen. And we, just as a side note, currently have 53, right, for all of our U.S. states and territories. Um, and they advocate on behalf, their constituents are the nursing home residents. So they represent the residents' interests and they seek to resolve complaints to the residents' satisfaction 
Um, they also will, you know, informally try to help residents empower themselves and advocate for themselves, but they are there to serve um, as an advocate. In addition to their advocacy work, you'll find many of the advocate ombuds um, educate, you know, consumer and long-term care providers about, you know, the residents' rights and, and good care practices, as well as provide relevant information to the public. So they're an advocate and they're also um, helping educate on, you know, how these systems can work um, most effectively. So that's um, that other common, I'll just share real quick, other common advocate models that you'll find here in the U.S. that people listening may be familiar with are patient advocate ombudsman. You may find like at hospitals and the healthcare systems, um, child or children advocate ombudsman. Uh, we have one here in Colorado and many states do that advocate on behalf of children and prisoner ombudsmen who advocate on behalf of inmates. Um, so those are some examples of the advocate model. Interesting. And when you say that they advocate on behalf of um, groups or populations, these are kind of, are these more policy-based? I, I assume they're not representing individual interests, but they're kind of advancing the overall interests of a, a particular group? Um, I would say both. You know, when it comes to those systemic um, issues that I mentioned is more like I think what you're getting at is a policy or a procedure trying to improve the system in general that you know for that particular designated group but they also do advocate on behalf of the individuals in that group. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So again a very different model um, than the classical or the organizational. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about the organizational model? Of course, I do, yes. <laughs> so the organizational ombuds um, are really here, you know, available to help facilitate um, fair and equitable resolutions for individuals typically within an organization. So their constituent group are usually internal constituents for whatever institution they happen to be embedded within. Um, so they're not advocates advocates, right? So they're not advocating for any particular individual, group, or even for the organization itself. They truly are that third-party neutral, you know, independent, informal, and impartial. Um, so they function informally for the purpose of complementing uh, formal processes. So unlike the classical and the advocate that I've talked about who do have or may have authority to investigate or provide assistance um, to individuals, the organizational ombuds is really, like I said, a neutral and impartial service that provides one-on-one you know, -on -one visits to offer coaching, um, to gather information and seek clarification, to maybe do some mediations, and of course that re requires everyone involved voluntarily using the ombuds service, uh, services and being willing to participate in that group facilitations, trainings um, on conflict resolution or communication or emotional intelligence, things like that. Referring, you know, helping people navigate whatever system or organization they're in and, and making the appropriate referrals. Like here at UC Boulder, gosh, we have, you know, it's a huge organization, right? And there's so many resources and so many different departments and units. And so it can be um, complicated and hard for people to navigate. So helping navigate systems, providing upward feedback, um, and also reporting on trends. So those are just some examples. There's more than that, but those are some examples of the kinds of things uh, organizational ombuds would do. In this field, I know Adam, you mentioned earlier about the classical, you know, it, how commonly used is it? It's the organizational ombuds field that is really growing 
rapidly. I mean, just in universities and colleges alone, we have 500 plus programs. Um, and there are many different kinds of organizations that use this model. Um, like I mentioned, universities and colleges, corporations, government agencies will sometimes have an organizational ombuds internally, right? Um, to help that particular constituents of that particular agency or organization, um, healthcare, nonprofits, et cetera. So you'll find organizational ombuds, um, both private and public sector. Most organizational ombuds are what we would call internal facing, and that means they address issues that are brought uh, by members of that particular entity, you know, employees, faculty, staff, uh, students, um, whomever their constituents may be. But others may be external facing and serve individuals outside of the organization who happen to have issues with the organization. And some are both. So for instance, here at UC Boulder, I would consider us both. So while our primary constituents are gonna be our university staff, students, and faculty, we certainly wouldn't turn away you know, an alum, a parent, uh, a contractor, really anyone who's having a university-related concern. Um, so we, yeah, so we see a wide range of, as you can imagine, <laughs> we see a very wide range of issues. Um, you know, inter interpersonal conflict is probably what people most commonly associate organizational ombuds with, but it goes a lot farther than that. You know, in, interpersonal conflicts and communications for sure, but it can be you know concerns regarding sexual harassment or allegations of discrimination, research misconduct, conflicts of interest, abuse of power, financial fraud, systemic issues, your know, process procedure issues. Really, it can be any you know any issue um, that relates to the organization. And unlike the, I mentioned the classical, you know, adhere to the uh, USOA, the United States um, Ombudsman Association Standards of Practice and Model Act, organizational ombuds, many adhere to the International Ombudsman Association's Standards of Practice and Code of Ethics. And the four of those, are, there's some similar, right, um, and, and one that's different. So the four for IOA is confident, our confidentiality, independence, impartiality, and informality. So the one that you may notice is different is that informality. Um, and so for the classical, it was credible review because as you probably remember, they do have some ability to do formal investigations and intervene in a more formal way, subpoenas and otherwise, whereas organizational ombuds purely operate at the informal level. Interesting. And to me, I think one thing you kind of touched on is that in the organizational ombuds uh, system or model, excuse me, um, the ombuds person is, is not just reactive in resolving disputes and kind of guiding people through the dispute resolution process, but they're also uh, proactive in that, you know, they kind of give you this uh, conflict coaching and um, um, other uh, programs to help prevent disputes before they arise. Absolutely, absolutely. We wanna try to help um, members of an organization, you know, um, you know, we all know conflict's inevitable, right? It's gonna happen. But if we can give people, um, not, not I, I don't like this word prevention, right? But tools, right? Tools to handle conflict um, responsibly and effectively, um, 
that's, you know, that's a great achievement. Um, so giving people the skills to, to do things on their own, empower them. Absolutely. I like that. Em empowering people to uh, resolve their own conflict. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of our trainings are exactly that. You know, I don't walk into a training or a workshop and say, okay, I'm here to teach you how to prevent conflict because, right, that's not realistic. Um, I'm here to give you the tools and skills to handle conflict effectively. And so, okay, so I've covered, you know, the classical, the advocate, and the organizational ombuds. Um, it's also important to note that there are, as I may have mentioned already, over 150 federal ombudsman programs. And, you know, that's probably a conversation for another podcast, Adam. Um, it is complicated. There are so many different types of programs and models. And I'll give you a few nuggets um, and people, you know, especially where people can go to get more information if they're interested. Um, but the federal ombuds programs vary. Um, and many do fit within one of the models I've already described. And some are slight variations thereof. In the federal ombuds, they often determine where they fit and what kind of model they are based on their constituents. So whether they're internal facing or external facing are kind of the two key questions for federal ombuds. And what I wanna point people to is there is a report that was issued back in 2016 by the Administrative Conferences of the United States and this report is a found, can be found in our Ombuds Day Toolkit, which I'll talk about in a little bit. You can also just Google it. But it's a very lengthy report, so you probably don't want to read all, I don't know, five, 600 pages of it. But there's an executive summary version that really does nicely break down the different types of federal ombudsman programs um, and, and, their, and their various roles. There's also a taxonomy, that a chart, if you will, that um, sorts them out for people and gives you know, some high-level understanding of how the different programs operate. So I think that's really important and interesting. Um, and there's also an organization for federal ombudsmen. It's called the Coalition of Federal Ombudsmen. And they um, are a group, obviously, of federal ombudsmen. And they've developed a unified model for developing an ombudsman function to provide some best practices and guidance for um, the various federal ombuds program models. So again, probably a conversation for another day, but I wanted to make sure that I highlight um, you know, how some of the federal programs are distinct from the three models I've already mentioned. So Liz, you've given us a lot of great information about what it means to be an ombuds and the different ombuds models but I'd like to know more about the ABA's upcoming Ombuds Day, which I think is October 10th? Yes, October 10th. So what is Ombuds Day? Well, let me give a little background. I think it'd be helpful to provide some context of how we even got to have an Ombuds Day. Um, a few years ago, on the heels of ABA Resolution 103, which encourages greater use and development of Ombuds programs, Council Member Charles Crumpton said to our then committee chair, chair Charles Howard, you need an Ombuds Day. <laughs> so Chuck brought it back to the, the committee for consideration. We tossed it around um, and we ended up drafting a proposal and then in 2017 submitted a request to the section to declare the second Thursday of October Ombuds Day. And so here we are. And so all this, you know, the purpose um, of Ombuds Day is really as we see it from the committee's viewpoint, an opportunity to, yes, celebrate the profession, 
and more importantly, to raise awareness about the different types of ombuds and the unique roles they play, the services they provide, and the value they bring to both their constituents in the organizations they serve or the entities they serve. And Liz, this is the second annual Ombuds Day, isn't it? Yes, it is. The inaugural Ombuds Day was last year. Um, so last year for the inaugural celebration, which was October 11th, um, we, the section hosted a reception and an educational event at the ABA offices in DC. And there was a fairly um, robust social media campaign and more than 40 individual Ombuds Day celebrations took place nationwide. So it was a really great first year. Um, this year is, as you said, the second, the second year, and it falls on Thursday, October 10th. And the theme this year is Ombuds, colon, unusual name, important service. So really what the um, ABA Ombuds Day Task Force is doing is we're building upon last year's successes, and we're orchestrating three regional events in Chicago, DC, and Boulder, Colorado. And each event, each event will have um, refreshments and programming. And the programming will include things like, you know, meeting with different types of ombuds, discussing the development of ombuds programs, discussing the benefit of having ombuds programs. There'll be guest speakers, there'll be authors and more. Um, so for instance, I'll give you some examples. Here in Boulder, we will be having a catered reception, um, an ombuds expo with different types of ombuds, as I mentioned, an ombuds panel discussion, and then a presentation by world-renowned mediator and author, Ken Cloak. And Ken will be talking on the topic of conflict revolution, designing preventative systems for chronic social, economic, and political conflicts. Um, Let's see, in Chicago, they're gonna have three panelists who are gonna offer ideas on developing ombuds programs. And then in DC, attendees will also enjoy a reception. They'll hear from keynote speaker, Charles Howard, who, as I mentioned, was the former chair of our ombuds committee and is now the executive director of the International Ombudsman Association. And so they'll hear from Chuck, from Chuck and then they're gonna engage in some small group discussions that focus on the benefits and value that ombuds provide in resolving conflict and supporting organizations. Those sound like some really great and interesting programs, um, but I also heard that if you're not in one of those major metropolitan areas, there are also a lot of other smaller events going on across the country. Yes, so we do encourage, the committee and the task force do encourage um, ombuds or anyone for that matter to host their own events, and we do have a um, ombuds Day Toolkit that's available on the Ombuds Day landing page, which I'll talk about in a minute, where people or ombuds can gather information, articles, graphics, um, Ombuds Day proclamation templates, and more to really help them host their own events, wherever they may be. Well, there's a lot of different ways to get involved in Ombuds Day, but who all should attend? Who are the people that this event is for? Yeah, that's a great question. So we encourage anyone and everyone <laughs> to attend, um, current ombuds, aspiring ombuds, business and government leaders, attorneys, dispute resolution professionals, truly anyone who's interested in a better understanding of ombuds. And as I understand, it's not just for people who are interested in becoming ombuds or just learning more about ombuds, but also if you have a if you're an attorney and you have a private client or you work for an organization that's considering starting an ombuds program, uh, this might be a great way to get some more information about starting that kind of program. Absolutely, I could not agree more. That's exactly 
um, who we would like to come and learn more and people who are considering implementing ombuds programs, exactly. So if I am interested in attending one of the events or learning more about Ombuds Day, where can I find some more information? Yes, absolutely. So for more information about these three events or Ombuds Day or the toolkit, there's a couple uh, ways to go about it. Um, for the events, the section is helping sponsor. You can simply go to the ABA Dispute Resolution homepage and then scroll down until you see the Ombuds Day information. And there you can click on whichever event you're interested in um, for programming details as well as registration. If you want a little bit more general information about Ombuds Day or access to the toolkit, you can go to the ABA section, DRS section's um, Ombuds Day landing page. Uh, and there, like I said, you'll find general Ombuds Day information, links to the three events, as well as a link to the 2019 Ombuds Day Toolkit. So Liz, thank you so much for telling us about Ombuds Day and what it means to be an Ombuds person. And if any listeners out there are interested in attending an Ombuds Day event or learning more about um, Ombuds Day, um, definitely go to the Ombuds Day landing page on the ABA uh, Dispute Resolution section website. And we hope to see you at one of the regional events or one of the smaller local events on October 10th. And Liz, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. I really uh, appreciated learning more about um, ombudsmanship and um, to listeners. Uh, thank you and tune in next week. Thanks, Adam.